you are listening to the Spiritual Warrior Coach with Barbara Sabin, the podcast for discovering how powerful your wisdom, compassion, and courage is. Get ready to join Barbara and her guests as they explore and offer you advice on how to reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. And now, here's the host of the show, Barbara Sabin. Thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. I am your host, Barbara Savin, and I am here to help you reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. And I am a certified clinical and medical hypnotherapist. I am a Reiki master and teacher and energy healing specialist, life coach, and best-selling author of Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. You know, I have been helping my clients for over 35 years, and the older I get, hmm, the more wisdom seems to come through. So isn't it time that you believe in yourself? Your mind is going to provide you with your greatest challenges in life because it's so very, very powerful. So let's use it for positive thinking, creating harmony, balance, peace, love, happiness, and anything else that your heart desires, because one day the world will tap you on your shoulder and say, this is your time to shine. And speaking about shining, I'm going to bring on my guest right now while I introduce her. Hello, Geraldine. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, Barbara. How are you? Good, good. Well, Geraldine, Gendreau, right? Did I pronounce it right? Gendreau. Oh, Gendreau. Okay. Is yeah. a licensed psychotherapist since 1995. Gerilyn is a playful, soul-provoking life coach who helps people discover the joy that is our natural state. She is also an author, editor, ghostwriter, and writing coach with a 20-year track record in publishing. And Geraldine's approach to personal growth draws heavily from the work of her mentor, Jean Lyloff, author of the child-rearing classic, The Continuum Concept. And Geraldine helps people who did not have a fully enriched infancy and childhood. She helps them understand the impact of what Lyloff term missing experiences and gain the courage to fully actualize life. Geraldine also works with clients to dissolve their self-defeating patterns and turn wasted energy into creative juice so that they can both reach their personal and professional goals. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you today? <laughs> I'm really well. It always gives me a tickle when people read what people pick from that excessively long bio to oh, share. Oh, I know. I said, wow, there is a lot of information here. And wow, you've had some life. Um, gee, I, and I was also reading that you had a, a, a near-death experience um, yeah, can, I was can you it, tell my listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, it was um, 1987. So it was I was 29 at the time. And so it was a very formative life experience. Uh, it it um, well, so the backstory, I was a bartender on down on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. And uh, I used to walk out of the restaurant with a lot of cash in, in my pocket. And I got nervous about that. And a friend said, well, come to my martial arts class with me. So I thought, perfect. 
So I became obsessed. I went every single day for uh, several years. I was training for my black belt test and decided I should go on a vision quest. I live in Northern California. People do vision quests, like other people <laughs> mow the lawn, you know? So, um, so we traveled, I went with a friend who also worked at the restaurant and we traveled up to Point Reyes National Seashore, in Northern California, and uh, hiked five miles out Bear Valley Trail to Arch Rock and then went north to Kellum Beach. Um, so spend a whole afternoon in the beautiful sunshine, hot and sunny. Back in those days, you probably remember Band de Soleil, that orange tanning cream that was like Vaseline <laughs> yes. textures. So I'd slathered myself with that and I was doing katas and, you know, doing sprints up and down the beach. And so it was time to go back. I hadn't had any visions. It was a little disappointing, but, um, I was, I just decided to run into the ocean and cool off. So I had grown up in Southern California, body surfed my whole life, but Southern Cal, it's the, it's, it's the Santa Barbara channel. There's mm -hmm. islands out there, you know, it's not the open ocean. Northern California is completely different. The sh continental shelf drops off abruptly. So oh. the way the waves come in is completely different. And I basically ran in thinking I'd dive through the curl like I had thousands of times before and the wave crashed right in front of me and I ducked and it hit me head on, Oof. crushed C3, fractured C2 and C4. That makes a sound you do not imagine you're going to survive. And uh, so my very first thought was, so that's how it ends, which had always been a big question for me. And then I went through this like rolling, you know, th this was the part that was so stunning. Well, there are many parts of the story that were very stunning, but I went through this like rolling recognition that answered all the questions I ever had. Wow. I remember like in my head saying, so that's, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. You know, like just expanding, expanding, expanding my awareness until I was like one with whatever it is up there, nameless, beyond time space, um, pure consciousness and everything made sense, perfect sense. And then I went through the life review thing it was a bit odd. Um, it, people describe it different ways for me, it was like, it was like a gestalt, like everything happened all at once. And what was most present were the times when I had hurt other people. And in that encounter, uh, for me, it was like a karmic, I call it a karmic wave. Like what if karma is actually when you have to experience who you are from other people's perspective. Mm. And again, it's outside time and space. So at one point I was reliving the moment that I caused a person the most pain I'd ever caused another person, human being. And it was my mother when I was 16 and she wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. And I was screaming at her. I hate you. F you, you know, oh, just, yeah. just with mm -hmm. the hatred. And I'm experiencing that from inside her body, from inside my brother's bodies upstairs, listening to me from inside my father's consciousness. When she told him late that night on the phone, cause he was on a business trip. And I'm feeling all of this. And, and then I'm feeling her future self. I'm feeling what it would be like to be in her body at four o'clock that afternoon, getting the call that I had died. Oh, wow. And it was only a year since my father had passed mm -hmm. of cancer. And my thought was, I, I can't die now. Literally, I can't die now. And then I, I went to the surface, gasped for breath, started screaming for help. Long story short, there was there was a whole process whereby I got rescued and 
came to, I was passed out pretty much and laid there for a bit going, you know, am I alive or dead? I must be alive. Yeah, there's my hand. I can see my hand, but my hand won't move. What? My hand won't move, you know, and, and the impact of that recognition that I was paralyzed was more powerful than the impact of the wave because that had actually always been my deepest fear. So here I was experiencing my deepest fear, terrified, and it was as though reality just ripped. And you might remember, I had this experience that uh, very similar to what happens in the movie, The Matrix, when Keanu Reeves or Neo and Morpheus are in the construct. So it's like they're in this place that's all white and there's nothing there. And I'm just in this white construct. And then three movie screens appeared. And the first one was my funeral, my brother's standing around my grave and it was kind of fading out. Like that was a potential future that had passed. Mm. I was alive. The one in the middle was right there in front of me, the most clear. And it's me sitting in a wheelchair with this very short haircut that I had at the time. And then that was right there. And so that was the most likely future at that moment. And then in the third movie screen was this woman with long blonde hair spinning in circles and whipping her head around on stage. Needless to say, I picked door number three. (laughs) And I did go on to do, for years, I was performing roomy poetry on stage. Oh. Wow. There's actually there's actually a video on YouTube if you if you search uh, Rumi's wedding night Geraldine, you'll see me doing exactly what I saw in that vision, spinning and twirling and my hair going right. Anyway, so um, so I had that vision and then my friend who'd rescued me, this was the part I think of as a divine intervention because she's standing there looking at me, realizing I'm paralyzed, and the thought she said that she has this thought like, oh my god, she's gonna hate me for pulling her out if she can't never move again and and then she had this thought that came in she said it was like a voice came in and said you have to make her move not move her but make her move and she stood up stood over my paralyzed body and started to scream like at the top of her lungs with all the force of her being with the the force of it was like a power greater than herself spoke through her and with a command you know uh, just with an authority that she didn't actually have. So it was a higher authority. And it's like my body understood what that meant to crawl. And I started to creep and crawl up the sand and kind of went through evolution as though I were the first amphibian to crawl out on the sea, out of the sea and went through the stages of creeping and crawling that an infant goes through. Mm -hmm. And it's my, uh, the best explanation I can have for why I'm not paralyzed is that I went, my spinal cord kind of reconfigured itself just the way an infant does in the womb. Yeah, because the next day when the, the orthopedist saw my um, x-ray, he looked at it and he said, I had crushed C3 and fractured C2 and C4. Wow. And he looked at it and he said, there's no way you could be walking. I walked into his office. Anyway, um, the, the thing that is most significant about this whole entire experience is actually what led me to Jean Leedloff, the woman who wrote this, the, the woman whose biography I just wrote. Um, and that was that once I hit the warm sand, I like crawled up into a fetal position and it was though I had just been given birth to mm-hmm. by the universe itself, by the ocean. And, and the entire universe was an ocean of love. I w- felt surrounded by this powerful, loving force, like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And, and my thought was, 
I felt completely at home in my skin, no tension anywhere in my body. And the thought was, this is, this is how I'm supposed to feel. This is, this is who I truly am. And it was like pulsing, just pulsing. And then the, the very next thought was, why haven't I ever felt this way before? Like, if this is who I truly am, you know, like, this isn't right. And that question, why haven't I ever felt that way before became my driving, you know, my reason to be like, and it, it has fueled and propelled me through everything in my life since really trying to find my way, trying to find out the answer the question, why haven't I felt that way before, which Jean's book, it really lays out. Um, She lived in the Amazon rainforest with the indigenous people there back in the fifties and sixties, they had never seen white people. Wow. And uh, no exposure to civilization. And the way they treat their infants and children is very, very different than we do in the West. Her book, The Continuum Concept, actually inspired the baby wearing trend, you mm-hmm. know, the attachment parenting movement. All of that came out of her work and um, or her story, really. So, um, and there, those infants don't have the kind of self-doubt, mm-hmm. identity confusion, anti-self feelings. They don't struggle like we do. Like, who am I? What am I? Why am I here? They don't, because they, because they got what evolution prepared them to receive. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we didn't evolve for 7 million years, hominid evolution to be put in a crib and left to cry ourselves asleep in the other room. We never would have survived. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like our biology, our physiology is programmed. Jean used to call them innate expectations for appropriate treatment to be held on mother's body, mm-hmm. to sleep between the parents, which these days would be scandalous. But imagine if you know they're in the cave with mommy and daddy, of course, that's where they're going to be. That's how they stay safe. That's how they stay warm. The whole family, the family bed is another very controversial part of her work, but it's uh, you know, it's, it's growing in understanding and in the continuum in this book, in Jean's story. So I t- retell her whole story. You get her whole life. The book spans the entire 20th century because she was born in, I think, 30, 20, 27 or something and died in 2011. And she was born in 1927 and died in 2011. Right. Uh, she asked me on her deathbed to write her biography. Um, it's a, it's a crazy story. She was a Manhattan socialite. Who ran so I was going to ask, how did you meet her? You know, uh, so I've, I'd had this question after my near-death experience. That was 1987. I went to graduate school. Like a lot of people who go into psychology, I was trying to figure myself out. <laughs> and um, I finished school. I hadn't figured it out. I was working in a drug and alcohol treatment facility in San Francisco that was a family reunification program. So it was moms who had, their children had been um, confiscated by Child Protective Services. They'd been, what do they call it? Whatever they got removed from the home. And this was a way for them to regain custody of their children by living with their kids in in milieu in a treatment facility. And I was a resident manager and we had this parenting manual. And the parenting manual made no sense to me. I was like, what do you mean mom can't lay down with her crack baby who's screaming, you know, you know, like she can't breastfeed like that just didn't make any sense to me. And I understand it from the framework that they were existed in. Like a lot of these women were sexually abused as children. They had their own abuse. They had boundary issues. So it made sense in that context. But my body was like, nah, uh, uh, 
so I couldn't, I couldn't uphold the manual. So I had to quit. And I read a book um, by Rianne Eisler. You've probably heard of it, The Chalice and the Blade. Um, I was very thrilled. She endorsed this book. She, she knew Jean's work. She was, one of, she was one of the stepping stones that got me to Jean because her book, The Chalice and the Blade is about ancient matriarchal cultures where they, they had all the goddess figurines and they, they, it was a society based on cooperation and joy and uh, very, very different than, than our culture. And I was reading that and I was like, I need to find, what did their parenting manual say? So I was joking with a friend and I said, um, I need to find a time machine, go back and see what they did with mm. their, because oh, I don't need a time machine, just read this. And she handed me Jean's book. Wow. A and it, it, it blew my mind. I cried. I read it two or three times. And then I was like, how do I find this woman? I tracked her down and turned out she lived in Sausalito. So I lived in the city at the time. I ride my bike across the Golden Gate Bridge and hang out with her and go to the Depot Cafe in Mill Valley for lunch, you know, at least twice a week. And then I became her personal assistant, started a nonprofit for her and, um, you know, knew her over a period of 15 years. It was a very difficult relationship and I spare no, you know, uh, I tell the whole story in here. Um, you know, she was an expert in relationships, correct, proper bonding, but she had real issues and she played them out with me. Um, she told me the first day we met that she, she actually said to me, not the first day, but the first time we had lunch together, mm -hmm. she said to me, she always called me pussycat or darling, never Geraldine. It was always pussycat or darling. She'd say, darling, there's something I always do that pushes people away. I, I don't know what it is. I ruined my relationship with Gloria Steinem and I don't know what I do. I do it all the time. Promise me you won't leave. You just don't let me push you away. Just tell me what I'm doing. Tell me what I do. Nobody's been able to help me. I help all these people. By then she was a counselor and um, parenting coach, people around the world, but she could not figure out her own I call it the blind spot. Mm -hmm. And, and so um, that became, that's actually kind of a subplot in the book. And okay. in the end, uh, I went through a lot of searching my own soul and my own being, noticing that other people seem to have this blind spot. You know, at one point I started a women's group thinking that if women sat in a circle, we could, we could tell each other, yeah, this is how you're shooting yourself in the foot, because I could see how all my women friends were doing it, but I couldn't see what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately it kind of devolved into a goddess group where everybody just sat around and, you know, we'd get on the hot seat and say, this isn't working in my life. And, oh, but, but goddess, you're so beautiful. You know, <laughs> like very Northern <laughs> California uh -huh. and, uh, didn't work. So I didn't have skillful means, but eventually I met someone who did have skillful means and I really started to understand that these fixations in the personality that most people have, they have a way where they go into their not self, mm -hmm. they go into the negative ego and act in ways that are counterproductive and don't serve their highest good or that of people around them. And um, once I discovered mine, it became easier and easier for me to understand myself and help pe other people discover their blind spot and understand them. It changes everything. And were you able like, to help Jean? Yes. Oh, you did. At the end of her life on her deathbed, wow. she, she recognized it. The, the way she would, I'll tell you, it's funny. I haven't actually told this story on any of the podcasts I've been on, but, um, and by the way, Gloria Steinem endorsed this book. She's my first endorsement and right on the cover. I'm, I was very proud of that I got to talk to her. I had to really work to get to her, but um, 
that I talked to her about her relationship with Jean because I wanted her side of the story. And there's an appendix in there about that. But um, what was I, I lost my train of thought. What was important, what was it? Oh, so the way hers showed up, I'll give you an example. It's in here somewhere. I could actually read it to you. Yes, please. <laughs> she would. I, this wow. is so funny, Barbara. I love where this is going because I haven't <laughs> talked about this that much in, in all the podcasts I've done. Let me see. It was. Um, so this is just one example. Uh, I, I, I wrote another book that had just come out at the time. It was an anthology. Um, and. OK, here we go. <laughs> this is so funny. Uh, okay, this is really, this is actually several of them. Um, this is a scene when we're at the Mill Valley Cafe. So, oh, okay, okay. So, I kept that promise for twelve years. The promise not to go away, even though she pushed me away a lot. I saw this behavior over and over. Um, Sure, we had the occasional falling out, but we always managed to slog our way through rough terrain. Per her request, I attempted to point out her off-putting behavior several times. One such attempt occurred while we ate lunch on the outdoor patio at the Depot Cafe. As was our habit, we sat at the edge of the fenced-in patio right near the square. I loved to watch the comings and goings of all the lovely people, especially a group that often gathered to practice capoeira a Brazilian martial art dance form. Meanwhile, Jean loved watching the children. Whenever she saw a mom making a fruitless attempt to get her child to obey, Jean would walk up to her, apologize for the intrusion, pull out one of the reviews and comments booklets. She always carried that in her purse. It was, she had rave reviews for her book and, and she'd say, you might find this of interest. Then she would offer a knowing smile and walk away. Jean didn't need to look at the menu. She always ordered a turkey sandwich. I, on the other hand, liked variety. I took a few moments to consider my options and decided on a taco salad. She waved to the waiter, a Latino man she knew by name and ordered our lunch in perfect Spanish. Then she launched into a not atypical critique of my appearance. Darling, you really shouldn't go out of the house without mascara, she said, and your upper lip is so thin. You really must use a liner before you put on lipstick. I didn't bother to argue, but I like going on natural. I just shook it off with a little humor. What, you don't like the lipless wonder look? <laughs> Over the years, Jean had taken it upon herself to critique me on everything from my style of dress to my choice in men. I always did my best to be gracious. I even managed to brush it, brush it off the day she clipped me at the knees after my first book signing and public talk in San Francisco. That morning, I decided to wear an outfit that was less Marin casual and more city chic. Deciding to go all black, I put on a short skirt and black turtleneck with fetching boots and fishnet stockings. Jean had inv invited me to stop by her houseboat on my way back home to San Rafael. I pulled into the parking lot at Issaquah Dock feeling quite pleased. The book signing had gone smoothly. My nervousness had vanished as soon as I'd stepped up on the microphone. Eager to share this with Jean, I wrapped her brass knocker. She opened the door, looked me up and down and said, you look like a tart. And here I was so proud of myself for wearing a sweater that didn't show my cleavage. Before bringing our meal, the waiter dropped off, dropped off the standard basket of chips and salsa that comes with a taco salad. 
I was unusually hungry and dove in straight away. I hadn't munched down two of the salty chips when Jean swiped at me like a cornered alley cat. Stop crunching! Her words were sharp and definitive. They stung as if she had indeed reached across the table and scratched me, breaking the skin and leaving tiny drops of blood. Jean, they're tortilla chips, I said, bewildered. She gave me a look of scorn and shook her head, almost imperceptibly saying, naughty girl, with her eyes. My appetite ran out into the square and hid behind the redwood tree. I sat in my chair, eyes cast down, vaguely aware that it had happened again. I excused myself to go to the bathroom to lick my wounds. I looked at myself in the mirror, my face, my face host to the twisted look of a little girl who'd been chastised without cause. I vowed to say something, to let her in on the effect her caustic statement had on me, the fact that it had killed a perfectly pleasant mood. I knew better than to do so while actually showing my hurt, a demonstration she despised. I stiffened my nearly non-existent upper lip, walked back out to the table and sat down. Jean, I would appreciate it if you would refrain from criticizing me so much. First it's my makeup, then the way I chew my food. Tortilla chips are crunchy for the love of God. It's not like I was chewing with my mouth open. It doesn't feel good to be scolded like that. I took a breath and said, that's the type of treatment that makes me want to go away. You're being too sensitive, she said. There it was, again, dismissal of any feedback. A short puff of breath, almost a snort, came from the back of my throat. Fortunately, she was looking at her plate and did not see me shake my head from side to side. We ate our meal, Jean joking, while I sat nibbling my taco salad in silence. She was truly unaware that anything had happened. Wow. So she, she didn't have feelings towards hurting others. She didn't. That was this, that was this blind spot behavior that kept her from having relationships. There were very few people. I was really the only one that, that stayed. I was there for, she asked me to write her biography on her deathbed and I said, she, she stopped eating. She couldn't get out of bed anymore. And she said, life's not worth living bedpan to bedpan. And she chose to stop eating and starve herself to death. So I sat at her bedside for those 40 days. And the last during the last week, I explained to her about the blind spot work. We got to a point where uh, at some point, shortly after this incident, I talked to her about this behavior when she wasn't, when we weren't in the middle of it. And um, she quite, we agreed that we'd have a code word for it. And that was, um, where's Gloria? That was like the code word that would be like, hint, hint, you're doing it. You're doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think I ever used it, but on her deathbed, it was the day she asked me to write her biography. She said, you be my Boswell. I had no idea who Boswell was. He's a famous biographer who wrote, I think it's James Adams or one of those guys. Um, biography. And I, I went, Boswell? And she looked at me and she goes, you truly are an idiot. <laughs> and and because I had done my blind spot work by that point. So I didn't do what I would ordinarily do, which is mm -hmm. go upstairs and get some cookies or push back or, mm -hmm. you know, get somehow offended and angry. I just looked at her and said, ouch. One word, ouch. Wow. That's... And she got it. She got it. She said, deadpan. Where's Gloria? 
Wow. So she understood. It was, it was the first so time she was able to see her own blind spot. Her own blind spot. Right. I get, I've just got goosebumps even just telling the story. So um, yeah, it was, it was all very profound and it's a big, it's actually a big part of this story. You know, you, we get to see what happened to her as an infant, mm-hmm. you know, her, her life, her family story, it's all part of this um, biography. So it's, so was she abused as a child or? Um, well, gosh, I could give you another example. Can I read one more little passage? Oh, you can read all you want. <laughs> her mother was horrible. So, <laughs> so, so let me see. There's, there's one uh-huh. part. It started from the time she came out of the womb. And that, this is, it's an interesting thing because most people don't have much memory at all before they're five. And if they do have memory, it's because something is either so surprising or such or or so shocking, often abuse, but often just something unusual. Mm-hmm. Like I know somebody whose earliest memory, my ex actually, his earliest memory was when his mom sent him down to buy the bread for the first time because he was old enough for her to hand him the money. She had a newborn and she's like, please, please go. And he, that's the earliest memory. It's being mm-hmm. sent to buy bread. But the, the long-term memory tags events that are completely novel like that. So she was born, uh, let me just find, I'm looking in the, it's easier than farting around with the book itself and looking through the pages. It was, um, here we go. Um, so uh, this is from her journal. I did have her journals available. So I'll read you the paragraph that comes through it. Um, This is one of the early chapters. Uh, Jean was never truly convinced that she, this is when she had, boy, so many rich passages in here, if I say so myself. Um, So this is, she had gone to live with her grandmother, her grandmother, darling, everyone called her, who um, lived in the Upper West Side, Manhattan, ran a ran a business, the fan company, and was quite gracious all the time. So um, Jean was never truly convinced that she would not be returned to the dreadful dark place, the apartment somewhere in Manhattan where she'd spent an eternity with her mother before the notion of passage of time entered her mental development. To her child's mind, it was just the way things are for me. Later, as an adult who'd become an expert in mother-infant bonding, she would often reflect on the fact that she felt unworthy and unwelcome. That feeling had been instilled in her by her mother's first dictum when Jean was presented to her in the delivery room. In her journal, she wrote, after my struggle toward the light, my birth, my severance from her body, my being mishandled and cleaned up by strangers in preparation for the momentous presentation, Mother turned from me in disgust and build and bid the servile nurse toglo in disturba, an Italian expression that meant remove the disturbance. As was ordained, I was immediately removed from her sovereign presence and taken to a place where I would not offend anyone, i.e. isolation, a room, I think, where there were instruments and tables, but no people empty, silent, but I did not willingly retire. I cried, I screamed, I wanted, I could not give up. It seemed life and death to me. This goes on for a bit. Um, Wow. And every succeeding, actually life or death to me, the silent abyss, the shock and trauma that branded a template unwelcome into my unformed mind. 
and every succeeding moment of my life was lived in reference to my mother's offhanded pronouncement. How to escape it? What do I have to do to bluff my way a little longer? How could mommy be made right so that she could maybe later somehow be fulfilled, made happy? If only she would dress better, be nice to darling, be in, not out of what I wasn't even sure. All I knew is that my mother mocked me for wishing to be one of those confident girls in parades who marched to the drumbeat, strutting in white uniforms with gold braids and buttons. It was clear to me those girls had something. And then there's Jean's, then, and there Jean's rioting trailed off as if she was unable to finish the thought. At every moment, Jean had to make an effort to prove she was blameless, to make excuses for her presence, to win games, show valor, merit, wit, strength, humor, virtue, fairy tale values, not so much to gain recognition as to evade being recognized as an imposter in a world full of the right people. Never, of course, did she put any of this into words and form a clear thought as a youngster. She was only able to do so in retrospect when, as an adult, she remembered the constant, constant anxiety in which she had lived as a child. So with, with all this that she's gone through, evidently she was, you know, not, I, I'm sure the mother loved her, but, you know, back then, who knows, you know, what was going on. How did actually all her ideas come about where, mm. you know, uh, with you know modern parenting you know well, so, switch? so one thing i'll say you said her mother loved her but you, you know that's that's questionable well, mother yeah. was truly narcissistic personality disorder mm, yeah and not- narcissists love themselves first and foremost and they um a, a narcissist actually recently tried to shame me and i saw it and i named it and i realized something that um I'd been told, but never felt that narcissists have no empathy. Exactly. They can feel compassion, but they can't feel empathy. They can't feel another person's experience. So whether she loved her or not, I don't know. She probably loved having a beautiful daughter, but she called Jean ugly. But the way, so you asked an interesting question. How did her ideas come together? So Mm -hmm. she had had this transcendent experience as a child at um, camp in Maine. She went to boarding school, you know, typical blue-blooded upper-class New York society people and she had this transcendent experience so she was always attracted to the jungle and after her grandmother died who she'd lived with and uh, she tried college flunked out but she was going to all these you know parties with dignitaries and famous people in in, uh, New York and her grandmother died so she decided to go off to Europe and she did the European tour and all of that. And then she met this Italian count who was going to the jungle. And mm-hmm. she talked him into taking her with him because of, she was drawn to it because of that early experience. And then she made five expeditions over a period of uh, the first 10 years, she made four. She went twice with the Italians, ostensibly to hunt for diamonds. And then she went back to, to just spend more time with the Yaquana because she fell in love with these people and their way of life. And uh, so she led the last three expeditions. And then the, the last one was in the late sixties, early seventies. And um, she went back then to kind of test her ideas. So she never went to study them. She just lived in their villages. Lived, yeah. But she had an absolutely genius intellect. 
And she actually believed that the reason she could see what she saw was because she hadn't had academic training that narrowed her vision. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it's all very interesting. She one time went and met with Margaret Mead and Margaret Mead called her this unlettered thing and told her she should stop bothering important people <laughs> because by then she'd caught the attention of a lot of muckety mucks, you know, and mm-hmm. she was being interviewed. She was actually interviewed by Barbara Walters. You remind me of Barbara Walters a little bit, but um, anyway, so that's how she came to, she, she eventually got a, a book contract uh that's and that's when she went back the last time was to test her ideas she wrote the book after being writer's blocked for years and um the publishers didn't like it they she'd gotten an advance from two publishers and they rejected it and uh but she would not change it they wanted it to be more they they wanted a blonde goes up the amazon adventure story and what they got is basically a treatise on human nature Mm -hmm, exactly And, Mm -hmm. and they weren't having it but she said no that's the book I'm not changing it. And she eventually found another publisher. And at this point, it's been translated into 21 languages. It still sells 40 years later. Last time I checked on the Amazon sales uh, thing, it was like number 20,000, which is unheard of for a book that's been around for 40 years and that nobody's marketing. But everybody recommends it to people. Like uh, Gloria Steinem told me when I talked to her, she said, I still give Jean's book to everybody I know who's having a baby. So you know, and that doesn't count the copies that millions of copies, and that doesn't count how many times it's been handed around, oh, you know, I can imagine the kind of book that people share. So how, and, how it was her parenting, you know, from living with those people, you know, in the jungle, how was it different than, than how we are here? Well, so it's interesting. Um, she, there are several principles that she extrapolated. One is that they see their children as perfect. They don't assume that this is going to be a little hellion that needs to be broken and disciplined. Now, that's not so prevalent now, but in the 70s, it was. And she was raised in the 40s. And, you know, So there wasn't this assumption that the child was going to be a problem. Child rearing was not separate from life. A woman would give birth. By that afternoon, she'd be back to work doing her thing with the baby tied onto her hip in a sling. And the baby stayed there on her body or got handed off to somebody else, sometimes another mom, sometimes a little kid. So they never saw infants as fragile. They didn't see them as incompetent. They were always, it was assumed that they would know exactly what to do. So there wasn't even instructional. They just, the kid was there passively observing what his tribal people do. And everybody assumed that he would know and become part of the tribe in the natural way that a child would. So the other thing that's really remarkable is um, like, so a human infant is born prematurely compared to any other mammal. If you think about a a horse, it gives birth to a colt. The colt comes out, he's up on four legs within half an hour and trotting around the pasture in no time. Mm -hmm. Human infants are born entirely helpless. We can't walk for, you know, the better part of a year if that's soon. So we need to be close to mother's body. That's our right place. And that's what you read the bio, my bio. It's like, those are the missing experiences. So the, the Aquana children, they didn't kick and scream. Their bodies were soft and would mold to mother's body. Mom could dance and the baby would be asleep in the sling. Its head never fell off from the bit dancing. So we treat children like they're very fragile and like they're going to be bad. And one of the examples Jean used to say is that she'd say, when you say, Johnny, be good. What you're basically saying is you're you're bad. Bad. Mm -hmm. Don't fake it. 
you know, so it's a lot of it is just in our expectations. You know, the, she said expectations really, the child reads our expectations. If you if you anticipate he's going to act out, and it's in the tone of voice, it's in the disposition. Mm -hmm. So part of her um, parenting, she hated the word parenting. By the way, she was like, you can't turn a noun into a verb. She was like that, but she would say to mothers, um, never tell the child the same thing twice. You say it once with the total expectation that they'll follow instructions. And if they don't, you go about your business because they hate to be left out. It's very interesting. Yeah, like, you know, you see mom saying again and again, do it. I'm going to count to five, you know, and like she gets more angrier. And uh -huh. every time her voice says, I know you're not going to do it. You know, you're naughty, you know, you're bad and you're not going to, and I have to force you. She communicates that with her body language and everything. So it's very um, moms read her book and, or, you know, that wasn't really in the book because she hadn't, she hadn't gotten that specific about the parenting so much, but she gave a lot of workshops and stuff. So it's, um, they read, they encounter her work, read her book, and they throw all the other parenting manuals away because it liberates their deep instincts. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's like, she gives them the green light to do what they know they should do. Like the baby cries, of course you want to pick the baby up. You know, just because some man who's a child, who's a, you know, baby care expert says, you know, don't spoil the child, let him cry himself to sleep. And then when the baby cries itself to sleep, they're all, see, the baby didn't cry itself to sleep. It passed out because the stress of it was too much for its system. So the only safe place was unconscious. It's like, it's like such a revolution in how we think about it. Now, I was never a mom. Okay. Never, you know, chose not to have children largely because I figured I'd just screw them up. I didn't know, oh you know, God. like if I had had this information then, uh -huh. you know, if I'd been, um, if I knew that, I think I could be a great mother now, of course, I'm no longer fertile. I'm no longer, you know, in that <laughs> stage of life, but I do, I have this fantasy about being a grandmother, you know, I've also never married. I have my own attachment issues, but, um, I, I sometimes imagine getting together with a guy who's, who's got grown children or having children and I would get to be a grandmother, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like, I, I love that. That's one of my fantasies, but um, yeah, it's, uh, you can see that I'm very passionate about it. It's become my life work and it's your I, life work. I feel so deeply honored that she like passed. She you, yeah. She passed all this yeah, on to you. She gave me, I mean, to be able to write this book and it's getting really rave reviews. Everybody that reads it is like, Oh my God, I, I had no idea if they knew her. And um, lots of people are talking about it should be made into a movie. Oh, it would yeah. make a phenomenal movie. So um, yeah, it's all very, it's very fulfilling to me. And I have to say, this would not have happened had it not been for the pandemic. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, how come? It, well, it was... Um, I had a very busy life, you know, lots of socializing, coming and going. And now all of a sudden we're on lockdown. I'm in one place. I'm, you know, and a friend of mine said to me early in the pandemic, uh, early 2020, he said, why haven't you published that book? He'd been a continuum dad, raised his kids this way and had read an early draft of the book. And he said, why haven't you? So 4th of July in 2020, I said, okay, I'll just put it on KDP, Amazon. I can do that in an afternoon. It doesn't need a fancy cover. I just get it off my to-do list, you know, finally get it done. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, 
this is too good. I can't, I can't have to do it. I have to do this justice. And took a year. It took a year of, you know, I've never worked so hard in my life figuring out how to, how to publish it. Initially, you know, when I got the Gloria Steinem endorsement, I put that on Facebook and a publisher from um, Simon and Schuster came to me. Like, when does that happen? Wow, that's an unknown author gets approached by Simon and Schuster. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they chose not to, they passed because Jean's not, you know, Jane Goodall. She's not a household name. Um, so it took, it took many years for me to get around to doing it myself. But I, I, I really enjoyed actually, you know, enjoyed as much as you can, a huge challenge doing the publishing and designing it and creating a publishing firm and all that. So it's, I'm very proud of it. Wow. So you did everything for it. Yeah. I mean, I hired professionals. I had a fabulous book designer and I had a couple of good editors and, um, you know, I had a lot of help, but even, even getting the help and finding the help and explaining what I need from the help. It takes time. I'm mm-hmm. consuming and can be, I learned at some point that I needed to work with people who I'd get off the phone with and feel more energized. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I really learned like, oh, these are the people I want to work with is the people who are going to have fun with me. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I was very fortunate to find some of those people. So. so let me ask you, what, what do you like this? So many new moms out there. What, what do you feel is the most important thing a new mom would get out of this book? Carry your baby. Trust, mm-hmm. trust, trust your instincts, you know, talk mm-hmm. to other moms, find in whatever way you can find your village. You know, the nuclear family was a really bad idea. So we have to compensate. We've got play dates, you know, if you can live in a community dynamic someplace, I mean, uh, preschools and that kind of stuff, the Montessori schools, the Waldorf, all that they're, um, they're good alternatives is the best we can do because we don't live in the jungle anymore. You know, we got freeways. You can't just let the kid. I mean, the, the Yaquana moms, their children would climb down cliffs completely confidently. There was nobody looking at them going, be careful. You know, they just assumed that the child would be safe. Be safe. And uh, we can't necessarily do that now. No, it's and different. There's so many, there's so much, we've gone so far with technology and everything that it's it's difficult. This is one of the big challenges is trying to translate her work. I work with um, Scott Noel, who was her, is her, owns her intellectual property rights and did a brilliant, um, he did a, one of the final edits to make sure I got it all right. Mm-hmm. But um, he is a continuum daddy, raised two beautiful girls, and he has more of the practical on the ground um, insights, really. So I rely on him a lot. I don't do parenting coaching, but um, I refer people to him when they need that. So really it's, I think that that's the most powerful thing people can get. And, and in, in the biography, there's lots of examples. Uh, uh, there's a chapter called Continuum Lessons where I um, tell some of the stories of what happened when she and I would be sitting there at the Depot Cafe. And there's a whole story where this woman is like losing it with her child. And, and I would look at her like, what's wrong with this picture? And she would explain it, you know? So it was a beautiful way to start to understand uh, like the application of, because the continuum concept is a theory. It has now been dem- demonstrated by science. Okay. Uh, William Sears, who wrote the attachment parenting book, um, he also endorsed the book, but he, he said um, that there's all kinds of research now that confirms Jean's theories. So I'm actually going to release a second edition of this with an appendix with all that research. So um, 
anyway, I just can talk a blue streak, don't you think? Oh, no, I, I'm like intrigued here. That's why I, I'm not even you know, asking many questions. I'm just letting you take over here because this is uh, unbelievable. I mean, you know, when I look at, I mean, my kids were raised in the 70s when I had them. And uh, yeah, I would always pick them up and, and hold them. And, and rock them to sleep and things like that. And, and I remember, you know, some of my friends telling me, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Then they're going to get used to it. But that was like just an instinct of mine. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is another interesting yeah. thing that I like to explain to people is that, you know, they, they'll get used to it. What does that mean? Like they're going to get dependent on mommy, mm -hmm. mommy for their good feelings and their safety. Guess what? They need mommy. They at that need point. mommy. Mm -hmm. Their their dependency needs are very real, mm -hmm. and if you meet their dependency needs at that stage of life, they naturally grow into independence. They they because they get their needs met eventually. They crawl off on their own. Exactly. Like, I'm safe in the world. The world is a safe place. I know mommy's going to be there if I need her. You know so because they're not deprived this is the thing um again in my biography where i say missing experiences and deprivations mm -hmm. that you know they were they didn't get the continuum correct experiences and in that gap we adapt and a lot of those adaptations are now what we call neuroses mm -hmm. you know like the attachment attachment issues attachment styles or whatever it's called i've got four of them so you know <laughs> <laughs> I have insecure, you know, uh, I'm going to think of what I have. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm finally doing the podcast, which is like, I finally said, okay, let's do this, which I was afraid of, of doing like video. And then I said, what am I afraid of? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just the fears that, that we all have. And, yeah, and I, I feel uh, many of my clients, you know, talk about abandonment, you know, yeah. how their parents were never there for them and yeah. then it creates so many other issues and challenges yeah yeah, yeah. we we need we and now with all this technology with yeah. phones and ipads and you know you really wonder how are these kids going to raise their children yeah yeah and now with masks oh that's there's a oh. whole generation of children that are not learning don't to see faces mm -hmm. like Oh, I mean, I don't even want to see what that's going to look like that's going in the to be. future. Mm -hmm. You know, the isolation is not good for children. It's like completely. Anyway, I, I don't don't get me started on that. One. <laughs> Maybe that's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I'm also I I look at these parents that, you know, they're in the park with the mask and I'm saying, my, we're outside. Why are you putting the mask on yourself and the child? They need to see our faces and expressions and, and they're not, they're becoming motionless, you know, there's motionless. Almost, there's like zero practically chance that you can get it outside. Like somebody would have to sneeze in your face. Exactly. Really. I know. I, it, I have teeth fear in my tongue from not saying something to people like I, I look and I say oh you know and I say to myself oh what are you doing to this child yeah. you know they're not seeing what they need to see and feel and experience but uh yeah that's another whole podcast yeah, there's gonna be a lot of developmental arrest I think, I think so I feel so yeah yeah I think so too even with adults they're becoming um yeah. desensitized yeah yeah and it's it's a shame 
Yeah, it's really a shame. But um, well, where can people get a hold of you? And your oh, books? yeah. So um, there's different ways. Um, uh-huh. junglegene.com is uh, the website where you can see the book. You can actually sign up on the email list and I'll send you the, um, I read the audio chapter, first chapter, you get a mini audio book of me reading chapter one. Um, I also have two websites. Well, they're the same website, but two URLs. One is easy to remember, the other not. So <laughs> gerilynjandro.com, which is uh-huh. a, bit a mouthful and you have to learn how to spell both names, but um, gerilyn.us will go to the same site. Oh, okay. And, um, you can get on the email list. You can find out about my different services. I do both writing. I have a writing group for people who are trying to um, write their book. And then I also do the blind spot coaching. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes, you're incredible. <laughs> you're amazing. I tell you, you really, I'm so happy I found you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a delight. I mean, this is one of the more unique interviews. I love the places that we went. You, Your questions were quite provocative. So thank you very much. You're oh, you're welcome. I didn't ask many, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I tell you, I didn't talk about any of those things that we talked about. Several of those, you know, things that we talked about, I, I'm excited to share this, this podcast with my people because um, you drew more out of me than the typical podcast host. So thank you very well, much. It is my pleasure. And thank you yeah. for coming on my show. And uh, I, I'm honored. And I, I can't wait, wait to uh, read the book. Yeah, Believe yeah. me, I can't wait to read the book. Yeah. yeah. So, um, do and you I know, read on a tablet? No. Oh, me neither. Okay. Cause the I, right I now, have, as you can see yeah. behind me. Right. Yeah. No, well then you <laughs> I, can need, I need the book. I have yeah, to feel it. Way. Yeah. If it's not wood pulp, it's not a book. Um, yeah. There's more it. energy in, in yeah. holding it than, yeah you know, the tablet, but, uh, I mean, of course, if, if I'm on a plane or in a car or thing like that, um, you know, I'm not going to bring a whole bunch of books with me. I put it on a tablet, but I, I love the feel of a book. Yeah, me too. So you can get a hardcover or soft cover on Amazon. There's also the electronic version, but you're like me, like, uh, I spent enough. I gotta have the real thing. (laughs) I don't want to go and sit in bed with a screen. I want a book in my hand. So no, it's too bright the screen, and then I'm up all night. (laughs) So be sure you write an Amazon review. Those reviews are important for. Oh yes, yes, I will. Believe me, and and and, you know, just thank you for coming on. Just say your website one more time. Uh, Gerilyn.us or gerilynjandro.com or junglegene.com. And I think you'll put it in the show notes. Probably. Oh, believe me, I will. They don't have show notes on Spotify. Anyway. We well, no, about- I put the, the, uh, on my YouTube, I put everyone's right. the, their bio Yeah, with wonderful. where they can get in touch because I feel it's important. That's why I'm doing this to, you know, connect other people. Yeah. That's yeah. what it's all about. It's connections. Mm-hmm. And having a good time doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thank you again so much. You're so on. welcome. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> so, I, you know, I want to thank all of my listeners um, for listening today. You know, and again, a very big thank you to my guest, Gerilyn. And I hope that you heard what you needed to hear. So again, thank you for listening and uh, visit me at motivateyourlife.net. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel, the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. And I also have another channel, Barbara Savin, where I have some meditations and grounding and some other things for you to listen to. Uh, so, you know, please like both of them and subscribe. And um, 
anyone that is maybe interested in learning about energy healing, um, check out my book on Amazon, Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. Uh, again, visit me at motivateyourlife.net. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful week filled with love and with light. Love, Barbara. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. My guest today was Gerilyn Jindrew. And for more information about Gerilyn, visit her website at www.junglegene.com. Please like and subscribe to this channel, the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. Have a beautiful day filled with love and light. Love, Barbara.